Coming up on today's show, we talk about Steve Nash as the new Brooklyn Nets head coach. What the hell is happening at the end of these games? And another installment of, is this a thing? And welcome to the Athletic NBA Show, Nerder She Wrote. I'm your host, Dave DeFort, joined as I am every single week by my guys, Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. Uh, no time for pleasantries, gentlemen. We are in the midst of the second round of the playoffs, and we got a lot to talk about. And the first thing I want to talk about with you guys, because it just seems like we spend a lot of time focusing on coaching and coaching hiring and firing and all this stuff. Um, we were all hit this morning. We're recording on Thursday by the bombshell news that Steve Nash has been hired as the new head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. And we're nothing if not completely reactionary. And so I thought, let's not take a full day to think this over. Let's just spill our guts live on the podcast. So, uh, Mo, I'm going to start with you because, uh, you know, you've, you've been in the video room. You've worked a lot with, you know, a few prominent head coaches, one of whom made the jump from player to coach in Doc Rivers. Uh, how do you feel about the Steve Nash hire in general? I mean, first, when I heard the news, I had to like double, triple, quadruple check to see if it was a, I was getting fooled by a burner somehow and whatnot. And, you know, you I go to my notification pages and there's like four different sources all saying it's him. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's true. I wasn't even hundred percent sure after that. Uh, I think the hiring is, a very interesting one. I don't know if this is like some people saying, Hey, this is a, he's going to be great. And some people are saying like, Hey, he's going to be terrible. Like, I just think it's one of those things you look at it and it's like, man, there's a big difference between being a consultant for a team and getting the parachute in and out of practices and games and working with the player in the off season and then running the team. And I just think there's so much that goes into it. Like, I just look at it and I go, man, I don't know if Steve Nash knows necessarily what he's getting into. And it's good that they're keeping Jock Vaughn on and he's going to be the highest paid assistant coach now in the league. But this is a uh, this is a hell of a uh, ballsy hire here from Sean Marks. I think this is reminiscent of uh, Dave and I uh, taught sports business classroom a couple weeks ago. And as always, we did a we did kind of a free agency uh, <laughs> exercise where the students got to do a mock free agency period. And the mistakes that were made there and the mistakes you see when teams sign players is, is um, when they focus on one guy to the exclusion of everything else, regardless of if there are other people with kind of similar merits. And that feels a little bit like what's happened here as they just kind of decided to focus on. Steve Nash because of, you know, relationship reasons and which is not illegitimate, but I just, I do wonder about the robustness of the search and how much this has been thought through. And I think for a lot of the reasons that, that, that Mo just talked about, I mean, I think if you went through like a really um, informed process, then you get some of the answers to those questions. How would you do dot, 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 all of these things that a head coach needs to do that isn't just like, managing the egos and keeping the players, you know, on one page and, and X's and O's. There's so much else that goes into what a head coach has to do in the modern NBA. And I, it, 
it's hard to 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 know whether any any player is really capable of jumping straight to that and doing well in this day and age, given how much the complexity of NBA organizations have just increased over the last decade, decade plus. Yeah. And the funny thing too, to me, Seth is like, we're looking at this and and all the comps are like, well, it's like Steve Kerr. No, it's not like Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr was an NBA executive. And when I mean executive, he was the GM. He was in there with the day to day. Like he hired coaches, he's fired coaches. Like he kind of understands to a degree all the stuff that goes into being a coach. So like when he came in to take over, it was a little more, he had a little more knowledge of what he's getting into. And that's kind of my concern with Steve Nash. Like they may have gotten a guy the players want, but I mean, that's one thing, but how are they going to respond when he wants to start Jared Allen? Right. It's a little bit more like the doc rivers situation. Doc was calling NBA games. Now, Steve Nash was, you know, doing soccer commentary, which close enough. Same attack angles, right? <laughs> I don't think the soccer offense is going to do him any good, though. But it, it does beg the question, what is the rest of the staff going to look like? Uh, I, I, I firmly believe Steve Nash can do the emotional intelligence part of the job. I, I would argue part of the reason why he was such a great player is because he really understood the players that he played with. And that's a great tool to have in your bag. But as a head coach, you need so much more than that. And, and you know, it, it's a it's an incredibly ballsy move. I, I, I think that, uh, Mo, you kind of hit it on the head. You have brought an unknown quantity into a situation where you expect to compete for a title next year. I think that's the that's the, the biggest point, actually, is, you know, as, as you said, as as Mo is, as, has hinted at, like, I think there's good reasons to think that 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 Nash has the the kind of the emotional intelligence, the empathetic personality, the knowledge of the, all of these things, the respect to the players, um, uh, the ability to work well, all these traits that go into being a good coach. Um, there's there's no time for a learning curve with this Brooklyn team. Like if if the Bulls had hired Steve Nash and he had, you know, a year and a half to, to kind of grow into the role as that team kind of ascends. Like that makes much more sense to me than just dropping him and okay, go win a championship. Like that's that's just a huge ask. Mo, we talked about this uh, before we started recording. Everything pointed to them looking for an established coach. Everything we had heard was Ty Lu. Uh, you know, maybe they're going to try to get uh, Coach K to come up from Duke or or something like that. You know, it just it never occurred to me that we would see a guy taking his first coaching job at any level, taking over this place. Yeah, it's one of those things where you look at it and it's like we all thought it was going to be, like you said, Dave, an established guy, somebody that's going to come in. We've said it many times on the podcast, on the ding, on anything I've been on. It's been this is an ego management job and there's a lot that goes into it. And we're going to see how this whole thing works out, you know, the other thing, and I'm sorry to keep bringing up this is the Kerr comparison, but the other thing, too, which is why it seems like an off-putting comparison for everything Seth said, when Kerr took the job for the Warriors, the Warriors weren't expected to be a championship team that year. That's right. They, they didn't have – now, they may have had it internally within the organization, but the expectations outside the organization was not this team's going to win a championship this year or they should have won it last year or whatever or whatnot. 
Steve Nash is entering an organization that is expecting to compete for a championship next season, period. And they're expecting to win it. You know, that's their goal. And everybody's going to be looking at it that way. And that's added pressure there. And I love that you said, Seth, that, you know, if he taken the Chicago job, it's a different story, right? He gets to grow with the team. He gets to kind of develop as a coach along with that. Now he's on a learning curve, you know, while they're trying to win a championship. And that's stuff that worries me. And we've seen it kind of work before. Like, you know, this isn't the best comparison, but David Black going from the Euro League into coaching the the Cavs. Now, listen, he had tons of coaching experience across several different aspects, but had never coached in the NBA and that he was trying to learn the NBA game as he's going. So I think there's a little bit of a challenge there in that regard that I think we're going to kind of see some stuff here like early on, whether he's going to be able to pick up stuff quickly. And I mean, I'm perplexed by it. Like, you know, it could be the best hire. We could be talking about it like, wow, this is insane. But it also could be a disaster. Well, and here's the thing. Ultimately, in the NBA, talent usually wins. Right. And his job is going to be to manage that talent. But if they don't win, he's going to take the blame for it. It is just plain and simple. If they somehow scuffle and they start out, let's say they're 15 and 15, which would be totally fine for a team fitting a bunch of new pieces, you know, and if the Nets had hired an experienced coach, I think you just you would even see the media say, oh, okay, well, this is the normal growing pains. But with this new coach who's never done it before, high profile guy, very splashy hire, which I think is, you know, half of the reasoning for it. Uh, it's they're not going to get that, man. And the, the heat is already on Brooklyn. This is not a plug and play job either. Right. Like, you know, we don't know what this team looks like. Big part is the single most important determinant of, of what Brooklyn looks like next year is what KD looks like. And we don't know. And, you know, you can you can base on the guy that was that was there two years ago. How much of that is there? What does now design your offense, design your defense, design your rotations for the first time you're ever doing it. And the biggest, most important piece you have to move around. You're not sure if it's 100 percent of life size or 70 percent of life size. And he hasn't played basketball in almost two years by the time the next season starts. So I'm just again, like you said, degree of difficulty and the, the need for it to work right away. And the funny thing is, is Brooklyn has tried this before. And, you know, there are, there are different personalities involved, obviously. But I think it's it's only fair that we ask kind of the same questions that should have been asked them then of this hire for, for all the reasons you and Mo have discussed. I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, Seth, something that you mentioned before we started recording, um, we all, I, I think in general, most basketball media – Likes and respects Steve Nash. He's a thoughtful guy. Obviously, was an, a, a fantastic player, one of the best point guards ever played, two-time MVP. Like the resume speaks for itself. But how much is the opinion of of the media at large and even the public at large going to be colored by the fact that we like Steve Nash, the guy, more than you know maybe Derek Fisher or Jason Kidd, who are the t- two most recent guys I could think of. Um, you know, that went straight from playing to coaching. I, I think that that's going to be I, like, I appreciate you bringing up that inherent bias that we're going to have towards Steve Nash. And and I'm going to do my best to be conscious of it. We got a lot of stuff to talk about, so I don't want to just stick on Steve Nash, but more to come on that, because I do think as his staff fills out, 
you know, you mentioned Jacques Vaughn is going to be his lead assistant, but I think the rest of that staff is also going to be very important on the basketball front. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, the other thing that's really on the front of mind is the way that the games ended Wednesday night. Both games were, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. They were shit shows. The, the referees completely just robbed us of the ending of games and, and with bad calls. And, and here's the thing. They're not necessarily bad calls, but the rules are bad. And then applying those rules the way that the referees have to by the letter of the rule created this funky finish. The, the, the Bucks heat with the back to back shooting foul calls and ended the game on a free throw. And Mo, I, I know you hate the Elam ending. But certainly we can do something better than what we got, where it took about 15 minutes to play the last minute of the of those games. Yeah, this has nothing to do with the Elam ending. No, 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 no. Right, like, right. Let's just uh, yeah. this is because those games, Elam ending games well, with free throws too. Something to stop do with it. Ending. Stop it. <laughs> stop it, Seth. You, okay, I will. It's, I will it's come not, to Milwaukee and slap you. It's not a one to one, but it is. It is the the. I know but, but that the, there are other the officiating, options. But this is the officiating. This is the problem with officiating in general. Like, we're taking too long with replays. We're doing all this crazy stuff. I mean, across the board. I mean, they're they're doing replays and still getting it wrong. I'm sorry. The Brook Lopez kicking his leg out for the and one three that they called uh, foul and then they upheld after the coach's challenge. Yo, that is not. First off, it's not a foul. And if it is, it's an offensive foul for kicking your leg out. But that's a other issue. But the end of game stuff, like. The foul on uh, Dragic. I mean, he was straight up. That's ridiculous. And then, you know, and then it was basically a makeup call on the other end. Like I just the the whole thing. And then the end of the Rockets game was another weird ending with the, you know, they call that foul on James Harden hugging up on Chris. You know, Chris, who's not one to be quiet when he feels wrong wasn't even complaining for a foul. He was trying he was to call it a timeout. And, and well, and this is the thing is that they, they use the freedom of movement rule. And Jared Weiss pointed this out on the daily ding this morning. Um, they use that freedom of movement rule to make that foul call. But Chris Paul wasn't moving guys put their hands on the, on their, you know, the guy that they're guarding, they put it on their hips all the time. The, the thing is, you have to let it go when they start to move. It's not illegal to touch the guy that you're guarding. And so it was just a bad foul call. And, you know, to make that call, like the, the push out of bounds on Harden, which in hindsight wound up being a great call, still not a call as, you know, I don't think I could make that call from 40 feet away. But then again, that's why that guy's refing in the NBA. It, it just seems like the refs are taking a front seat in too many of these games in particular that our heightened aware uh, awareness of them in the bubble is not good. This is a bad thing. It's a TV show first and foremost. I mean, we all talk about it like it's a sport, but it needs to be watchable. And the ends of these games are just boring. So Mike Bowie, uh, the guy behind the unpredictable account, which does a lot of really neat stuff in terms of of win probabilities uh, and and things of that nature, uh, he had pointed out that the last minute of both games took 16 minutes. Um, and as he put it, you'd have to be traveling at uh, 99.8 percent of the speed of light for one minute to to become 16 minutes in 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 in, in terms of relativity. And I think, um, you know, we're focusing on the refs and this call and that call. Um, 
I think that's a little bit almost too narrow because I think you hit on it, Dave, is that this is an entertainment product and this this micro focus on these minor little details are things that are that are, uh, you know, blockages to that, to, to it being entertaining, to having some flow. Um, you know, game Mo, I know you're you're against the Elam ending, but the endings of these games is not good. And that's that's referees getting every call perfectly. The pacing has been a problem. It's been a problem for, you know, 15 years. We've talked about that, how the end of, yeah. the end of these games drag. And, you know, yes, you want the competition to be fair and calls to be right, blah, blah, blah. But that is in service of of it being entertaining. And I think this is something that broader picture, there does need to be a little bit of a reset to recognize, you know, this needs to be entertaining. And that goes from the the refereeing, that goes from style of play, that goes from team team dealing with media. I actually made a joke on Twitter about this a few weeks ago, that if you if you use professional wrestling referees, the NBA would have a better television product. And it's because they are in on trying to make the product better. And so I would propose to the league to come up with a spirit of the game rule that actually allows the referees to use their judgment. These guys watch more basketball up close and closer than any of us, than anybody. Let them use their judgment on whether or not the rule applies. The Drogic foul could have easily have been called an offensive foul on Chris Middleton. And it should have just been a no call. I don't understand why we why these referees aren't allowed to be a little bit empowered to make judgment calls. I mean, that ultimately is what we would want. And I understand you want to take away bias, but you've taken away bias at the expense of flow of the game, quality of the game, frustration from the players. I mean, you know, we we heard Chris Paul's comments after the game essentially feeling like he's been targeted by one of the league's referees. That's bad for business. It's awful. And you already had the, the Donaghy thing. Thank you, Hunter. you know, there, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on there. And, and I just think that you could solve a lot of this by allowing a little bit of, of you know, allow the referees to use their judgment. You, they understand what's happening. You've removed bias and added a bunch of arbitrariness. And I don't mm-hmm. know if that well. It's the, like the, the, it's like the tax code. Yeah, no, the, they're going to get you on something if they want. Well, to. no, the 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 air punch is an automatic tech, but the stomp isn't. The two arm the two arm flail isn't, but an air like it's just you know. And all of these I are mean, but, instant expressions of frustration because guys are going hard. And what is the purpose of of banging a guy with a quick tech, especially if it's a close call? Those are the ones that that I think bother everyone is it's a bang bang play the ref maybe got it wrong and the guy how about Porzingis Porzingis gets gets a technical and the ref actually made the the wrong call they missed the call it was a clean block and he gets a tech for that and then winds up getting a second tech in the the incident with uh Marcus Morris and is ejected I mean, the, the, the I mean first off the league has to get rid of these automatic technical things because yes. it's not even it's not even they're not even automatic. Who's that, but, who's that for, though? Yeah, what's the point? Who, who are those for? Nobody. No, no, no. It's it's to it's like I get it too. Like part of this is 
we need to protect the refs. We need to stop the players from constantly complaining. And uh, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of stuff the players got to cut down on. I am very tired, too, of players acting like there's no way in hell I touched the guy when you damn near ripped his arm off. Like, first off, let's just stop with that acting as well. We I'd like to, that. Yep, I'm down. We, we got to stop with the flopping. We got to come down hard on flopping. Ooh, I know they just find automatic ejections for flopping. I, I, I know they just find Marcus Smart you know, 5k for that and things like that. Like they got to stop trying to trick the refs as well. So there's, it, it goes right. both ways. And then the refs have got to do a better job themselves. One of getting, stop getting fooled. There's so many things within the officiating. Like, honestly, you guys want to talk about like, we got to change the game and things we need to do Elam ending bullshit and stuff <laughs> like that, which is dumb as hell. But the honest thing is we need to start officiating the game properly. We need to readjust how we officiate the game. The automatic technical stuff, like, if you're going to call that, you got to call it every time. And they don't. There's at least three or four instances where I've seen a fist punch at a referee for a bad call and no technical. And I've seen it where they call it like you got to be consistent. And that's ultimately what you want from your officiating. But it's got to go both sides. The officiating has got to be better. We got to change how those this game's officiated. And we got to start dinging the players for stop acting. I don't, I'm not watching a movie. If I want to watch acting, I'll go check out Brad Pitt's latest movie or whatever, or Tenet. But I'm not here for this freaking Marcus Smart flying out of bounds. I'm not here for Chris Paul acting like he's gotten, uh, y- y- you know, just completely obliterated and 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 not and, and and when you look at the replay, the dude's hands are straight up. Like I'm tired of it. I, this is the problem with the game. That I'm with is this a big is the issue. most awkward segment we've ever done. I love it. It really is. But the truth is, man, like as people who love the game of basketball, if you were out there and and I hate to use pickup talking about the NBA, but the truth is if guys did this in pickup, you would want to fight them. I mean, if players flopping and stuff, but, but the referees are human too. And so, you know, they're watching 10 bodies and a ball and, and this 94 foot court and it's a lot. And so, you know, I'm trying to, to be fair to them here. I actually would also add a fourth referee. I think, you know, the league can clearly afford it and they've, they've toyed around with it and it makes their job easier. You're adding an extra set of eyeballs. The angles are better and those guys aren't getting as, as winded because, you know, it's a lot of running during a game for a ref. Anyway, there, there are fixes that, that, that are out there and they can, they can fix it, but they need to do something that needs to be a point of emphasis for them in the off season. Yeah. And, and just to reiterate, let's not, it's not the referees. It's the standard of officiating. That's the problem. I think that, that yeah. The referees, by and large, are getting the calls that they are told to call accurately. What they're told to call is is problematic, and that again, you know, we can we can we can do an hour on this in terms of like reforming the reforming the charge rule, talking about like the shooter's space to land, uh, calling moving. We'll screens. talk about it this yeah. offseason. We'll, we, we'll do a yeah. whole referee pod. Maybe we'll get Monty McCutcheon in here, and we'll do a whole refereeing pod where he tells us that everything is fine. But I mean, Steve Steve uh, Javi doing his Baghdad Bob impression. <laughs> oh, I mean, don't get me started. All right, well, we we're gonna move on, but first. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the art of cutting and we're going to talk about matchup hunting in, in half court offense. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. OK, so Mo wrote a fantastic article, which you can find over on Bleacher Report about the lost art of cutting. Mo, uh, listen, 
I don't know why more teams don't cut, but for some reason, the only one that uh, that is in the playoffs of prominence is, is the Miami Heat. And they destroy teams with their cuts. The Warriors were fantastic at it, but obviously they're not playing right now. Um, and, and Denver is okay. So it begs the question, why aren't more teams cutting? Honestly, Dave, I don't know. No, uh, You've known, actually, since I've done podcasts with you when you had your own show, I've talked about cutting. Cutting is one of my favorite things on the court. I think it does a lot of things for you. Uh, for your offense it opens things up it, even if you don't get the ball things like that I think it opens a whole bunch of things it just gets motion going causes the defense to have to react like a great example from last night's game of when a perfect time to have cut would have been you know anytime James Harden's isolating you know look at the nail the Russell Westbrook's defender especially if he's up high is already at the nail or even cheating more towards Harden that's a perfect time for Westbrook to cut, you know, and even if he doesn't get it, that fills, you know, another shooter fills up from the corner, kind of rotates and, and adds an added issue there for the, the defense to have to deal with. And I think there's just so many different times you can cut, but I think teams and the offensive schemes now have become so much of like, we got to space the floor. We got to keep things open. We want to make sure we get threes. You know, I was lucky to co- talk to, uh, coach Stan Van Gundy uh, about it. I was also able to talk to an, an anonymous, I can't even say that word. I can only write it. A, a, a scout who shall not be named, uh, you know, about it. And I think they both kind of said the same thing is we're so focused on spacing that sometimes we don't cut. And there are times too when you shouldn't cut, but like there are just so many opportunities. I don't think teams have taken full advantage of well, this Miami Milwaukee series is a great example of a team that cuts like crazy and a team that just for some reason uh, waits to cut until there's penetration. They're they're not. I don't think Milwaukee is doing much cutting at all. Like they're going five out with with Giannis with the ball at the top of the key, and the defense is able to load up inside. There's nowhere to cut. You would think that they would get those guys moving and maybe get Giannis into some cutting action, but I, I don't know. Especially when you watch Miami just back cut them to death. I think in your piece, Mo, I think it was you had Stan Van Gundy uh, quoting, uh, noting that, you know, as you're designing your defense, especially in these playoff series and guys are having to both guard their guy, but also be aware of where a star of where the star player is. That's a whole lot easier if you know exactly where your guy is going to be. And this lack of off ball movement that that teams are starting, that seems like some teams are starting to go to when they do these kind of five out systems. Um makes it a lot easier just to locate your guys. Okay, my help responsibility is there and my guy is there, so what's the precise spot on the floor I should stand? That becomes pretty easy if the guy isn't moving. Uh, some simple weak side exchanges, and I think actually Houston does a reasonable job of of having just a little bit of movement just to occupy someone so that they have to get pulled around a little bit. Um, but that movement off the ball to create that defensive movement, to create the opportunity for mistakes is something that, yeah, I think that um, teams lose sight of, especially I think we saw this a lot in the end of the the, the Denver-Utah series. Uh, Denver kind of kept some movement up, and as the series kind of got away from them, Utah was very stagnant, and it really allowed Denver to, to load up on the ball a lot. Yeah, that was yeah. the difference in that series. I thought that Mitchell, while he went off, he did it at the expense of their normal offense. And it felt like Murray was kind of getting his 
a little bit more in their normal flow, which, you know, guys can cut because you've got a seven foot dime slinger out there that can, you know, hit anybody who, who is moving. Uh, but the Miami Milwaukee series, is just such a stark contrast that I think talking about that actually makes a lot of sense here. When we're talking about cutting the Milwaukee defense is fantastic against a stagnant offense. It is great against, you know, 90% of the offenses that they play. But Miami, it's it's like they built their offense just to combat this defense. Yeah, and first, before I say what you go to your topic, Dave, about it, but to touch on what Seth said, you know, the it's so funny sometimes when you watch a guy cut and his defender's reaction when a pass is made is he goes to where the guy was last, you know, and he will step – to the three-point line before he realizes, oh, crap, my guy just cut to the basket. You know, like, I'm, this is the problem. You know, anytime your defender loses sight of you or when your guy is going to double, that opens up the perfect time for a cut. I think also when you're running a sideline pick and roll and the, you know, you got a guy rotating over and you have the weak side zoned up, you know, you have two guys standing at the corner and one at the above the break three. If one of those guys cuts, that puts that weak side guy zoning up in a really tough spot, you know, and that's where I get to the term cut assist because, you know, the guy cutting may not get the ball, but if he drags the defender over, it opens up a shot. And I had a clip in there from that Denver, Utah series, Dave, that had, you know, and, you know, Michael Porter Jr. cuts base or cuts from the slot. And that forced, I think it was Jokic, or I'm sorry, that forced the defender. I can't remember who it was who was zoning up to slide over. And that led to Jokic being wide open for a kick out three in the corner. And to talk to about the Milwaukee Miami series. I mean, this is Miami's bread and butter. They've led the league in frequency this year with cuts. They got a great uh, points per possession with cuts at 1.31. And I think they just, they just do a good job of it. Just constant movement. And it's hard to pin them down. So Mo, you were, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you you were with the Clippers when when at least part of the time when JJ was there, right? Yeah, I was there for one year with JJ. So those Clippers teams were very low offensive movement teams. You look at the tracking data, you can see this. With the with the exception of JJ, who would constantly and you know he's coming off screens, which is similar but uh, related enough to be to be useful in this conversation. So there, there, there were an offense that did not have a lot of movement and thus did not create a lot of defensive movement except for J.J.'s off-ball movement. And that's the kind of thing that because of his shooting ability, much like because, because of a good cutter's finishing ability, will move the defense around. And that's something that would open up in, in those, those cases. That would open up a little bit of the, uh, you know, the, the pick and roll to Blake, throw the lob to, to, to D.J. Um, if the backside defender is just, oh, my, I'm guarding the guy in the corner – he can be there to, to take away that lob. If he's worrying about JJ coming off a pin down or running the baseline or whatever else, he's distracted and can't be there for that play. So that's that's kind of exactly what you're talking about with the cut assist. Is guys like in the past, it's been JJ Redick, it's been Kyle Korver in his Atlanta days, who are forcing defensive movement without the ball. And, you know, putting defenders in spots where they have to react, have to make choices, can only help an offense. Yeah, I think it just it just opens stuff up. Player movement just makes things happen. You know, when when guys are standing in the same spots over and over again and stagnant, it's easy to defend. When the ball's in the post, there should be somebody cutting and moving. You know, there should just be 
should just be movement. It's just that simple. Like the more you move, the better chance you have to score. And this was a big thing that the Warriors kind of touched on in, in in their championship runs. And it helps having guys that can pass. Jokic for Denver, Bam for Miami, obviously Draymond for the the Warriors. And it, it's just it makes a big difference. Well, and it it also adds versatility to the way that you can attack defenses. So you're not stuck in one thing. You know, uh, cutting works against man. It works against zone. It, it works against pretty much any kind of defense you're going to see in the NBA. And you also can still do the other thing if the cutting isn't working. Like, I just don't understand why we don't see more variance in in, in the half court offense aside from, all right, well, we're running a motion. We're going to run high pick and roll. I, they're, they're just who else is running an offense like Miami runs? I mean, there's just so many opportunities in which you can do it. It's not it doesn't have to be even an actual set as much as just like, hey, you see this go. You know, it's it could be a part of every set. It's just an action. But it's it's so simple and it drives me nuts. If you watch the game with me, you at least hear me yell three or four times just screaming, cut somebody move, move somebody. Broken broken plays that don't have cuts happening drive me insane. I mean, the end of game for OKC and the Rockets end of series where, you know, Steven Adams didn't make the the logical cut toward the basket just was a little bit befuddling. I mean, it's just, it's simple stuff that I guess just if you're out of practice from doing it, it doesn't occur to you to do in the moment. And that brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about, because uh, half court offense is an important thing to have. I think, is that a hot take Mo? Like half court offense, having one, probably a good idea to have one. You kind of got to have a plan. (laughs) Well, then why in the hell are so many teams ditching their half court offense just to hunt mismatches? I do not understand. Like you've, it got you there all year and all you want to do is just change everything that worked, everything, and and just attack a a mismatch. Why do NBA teams still do this? I do don't understand it. It's kind of like the NFL defenses, you know, going from what was working, going into a prevent defense all of a sudden, and then they end up losing the game. So I just kind of, when I look at it, it's all kind of bad. And, you know, like a great example here is the Toronto Raptors, right? Like they feel like they have the size advantage. So, you know, against the Boston Celtics. So they've been posting up quite a bit they've been posting up Siakam they've posted up Ibaka and every time I watch that I go like that's just not a win for them because these are two guys that don't post up much for them they haven't posted up much this season you know they've they average according to the NBA website 5.1 post-ups do you know what they're averaging in the playoffs excuse me 9.3 like almost double like you know it's it's kind of crazy to me. You're you're not getting much out of it. This isn't what you do. And there's a time to match up hunt. And there's a time when you're just kind of getting away from who you are. And well, I think for as much as we talk about how great Nick Nurse is, like this is what's shocking to me. I'm like, this is a very un-Nick Nurse thing. I, I don't understand it because it's not like Boston has an obvious mismatch that isn't Kemba Walker. And guess what? Posting up guards just isn't really all that effective. Unless you've got, if you've got Joel Embiid posting up Kemba Walker, great. But Pascal Siakam is not Joel Embiid. But it's not, but the thing, the funny, this crazy thing is it's not 
walker that they're posting up. You know, it's not like they're just attacking the switch and going right into uh, Walker. You know, it's still Marcus Smart. It's still right, Jalen right. Brown. That well, Marcus Smart up. is the like, center. Good luck. Like, I just don't understand. Like, I'm watching it going like, what are you guys doing? Like, really? Another post up? Like, I'm <laughs> like, it, 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 it's driving me nuts. So. Broadly, I agree with your point uh, on the specifics of Toronto, Boston. The issue is. Toronto is not a great half-court offensive team, and Boston's a very good half-court defensive team. So it's not like Toronto has a ton of great options for how to create advantage situations in the half-court. And is are they perhaps choosing the wrong one? Maybe. But where else are they, you know, okay, are you going to have uh, Fred Van Vliet go at Marcus Smart? You know, um, maybe you, 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 know, you hunt Kemba, but... Uh, Brad Stevens is pretty good at, uh, at at figuring out where to put guys so they're not um, they're, they're not in those disadvantaged situations. We saw it at the end of game two where uh, people were. I was talking with Eric Name about this and and wondering why you can't find Kemba Walker. Well, he switched the matchups coming out of a timeout, so Kemba Walker was guarding someone. He's pretty sure is not. He was guarding Ananobi, so you're pretty sure he's not in the play. Um, now, if and and you know, thinking well, if their end of game play, we're going to put OG Ananobi in the offensive action. That's advantage us anyway. Um, so it's not like again, it's not like there there are other obvious places for Toronto to go. Sure. Okay. Well, let's talk about it on the other side of the ball because um, Milwaukee, obviously, Jimmy Butler has that big game one, and the question from the public at large is, why don't you just stick Giannis on Jimmy Butler? And Mo, like that's just not how NBA defense works. Like it's the opposite, right? You you put Giannis on Jimmy Butler, and all of a sudden you've played right into Miami's hands. Right. I mean, you're just mixing things up here in a situation where it's like, look, we've played this way. First off, Giannis is a fantastic help rotating defense guy, like coming in from the weak side for the block or things like that, kind of playing the safety. Like that's kind of his perfect role defensively you know one-on-one now you've taken that out of his hands and you put it on jimmy butler well you know the heat have other ways to attack like that's just a thing okay so cool you've taken jimmy butler out of the offense not a problem for miami they still got goran dragic who's kicking your ass you got duncan robinson running off screens and oh bam Adebayo, who's (laughs) who's right you know playing the handoff game and doing a great job out of it so it's kind of a problem there and you just sort of start messing with your schemes and things like that. I don't even look at Giannis as I might get a little bit killed for this one, but like, I don't know if he's that great in space one-on-one, you know, he's long. So it's effective and he's got long strides and he does a good job. It's not like he's a, a, a problem for you there, but I don't know if it's like, wow, he's just this amazing. Well, he's a ball he, hawk. He's a big. Yeah. I mean, it's he's simple. A big. It's just that I think people just conflate what he does on the other end with his ability to create and in particular in transition, create the way he does. And they just they think of him as, you know, a wing or I mean, even a one at at times. And he's clearly not. He wasn't defensive player of the year because he's out there, you know, (laughs) shutting guys down on the perimeter the way that Kawhi does. He's defensive player of the year because. He makes that entire defense, which is probably going to be solid without him because of Brooke Lopez and, you know, Eric Bledsoe and Middleton. Uh, he makes it elite in right. his by playing his role so effectively. So, you know, the, the matchup thing, it, it 
if you want to play that game, I think ultimately you wind up losing unless you just have talent at all five positions. Yeah. I'm, I'm not against matchup hunting, but mm-hmm. it's just got to be within the context of your offense. Right. You know? It's got to be and what that, you do. It's, it's, you know, okay. Like, here's a great example. The Utah jazz, you know, were were killing hunting Jokic in the pick and roll. That kind of works. Cause they've been a heavy pick and roll team mm-hmm. all year. Now I have, things about Utah's offense that I want to get into down the road, you know, on another day. But this is who they've been all year. And it's like, okay, that makes sense because the other guys know how to play off it and things like that. And you're used to Mitchell coming off the pick and roll. Now, you know, when you start trying to do matchup hunting and all of a sudden you're going like, oh, okay, cool. We're going to put Marcus Smart in the pick and roll or something like that. If you're Boston, it's like, okay, wait, that's not what we do like wait a minute yeah. now now we've now we've gone wrong it's like danger 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 like you've 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 gotten away from who you are like i'm all for matchup honey we're going to see it a lot in the lakers rocket series and i think you know but it's going to be in the context of their offense you know for both teams i think we're going to start to see that more and it's going to make sense whereas times where it's not like they're going to go cool james harden is guarding caruso let's put caruso in the pick and roll that's not going to happen so I think the the part Mo said that's that's really important is sort is is thinking about within the flow. Okay, teams are going to switch. They're going to play different coverages. You're going to end up with some. Hey, if we could go to that, that would be cool. Um, the spots where it works is if that's sort of an option that's built into the design of the play. Where it gets breaks down is where whoa, everyone stop what you're doing. Whoa, whoa, whoa you go here, you go here. You stand on the post, and we're going to throw the ball into you. And now you've burned eight seconds of shot clock trying to get the guy the ball at 12 feet from the basket with no movement around him. We just talked about the importance of movement around him because you've broken off any sort of set you have. And now you're asking a guy to go one-on-one, really closer to one-on-three with the the help that's going to come down. Whereas if, okay, well, if they switch, then, you know, you reverse pivot and seal and we'll dump the ball into you as part of like this play set. Like that makes great sense. Um, But just the like the explicit, whoa, everyone stop. This is awesome. Look what we got. The 24 second shot clock isn't long enough for that to be a useful long term like approach. All right. That's it. I mean, you you nailed it. We got to we got to get moving. Uh, But Seth has talked up this week's topic. Seth, I'm turning it over to you. Is this a thing? So let me ask you guys, what has been one of the the major topics of discussion about bubble ball? Shot making. Shot making. What are some of the theories that we've heard about why? Including for me. Uh, yeah, no gym. Yeah, no crowd noise. Obviously, line of sight. Uh, poor defense. What if I told you that I think it's almost entirely because there is nothing on the sidelines. I think that that might be accurate. So, um, first of all, I had I had uh, our Sam Amick uh, confirm the the d- dimensions of the bubble court um, between the 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 bench sideline and the, the the bench areas. There's an eight there's eight feet of space between the sideline and the bench. I think in a normal NBA game. Uh, maybe a foot and a half, would you say, between the sideline and you start to get into legs and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Yeah. Uh, on the opposite side, on the hard cam side of the floor, it's 10 feet, which, again, the fans are right there to the point where, you know, how often do we see a Coke get spilled or another beverage get spilled and it take forever to because it's all over the court. 
Um, the effective field goal percentage, including the playoffs for all shots that are not corner threes uh, for the 22 teams that appeared in the bubble uh, before the restart was uh, 52.89%. Uh, in the bubble, uh, 52.98%. Effective field goal percentage on corner threes before the bubble, bubble uh, 58.59. In the bubble, 60.72. So that's gone from these corner threes being pretty open because corner threes are very open in general with nobody running mm-hmm. at you. Now there's no one behind you to the side of you, anyone else either. And so guys are just so much more comfortable, I think, going into a nice, easy shooting motion, letting it rip. And, yeah. and that's and that's where the increase in 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 shot making has largely come from in the bubble. Is that a thing, do you think? I think you might be onto something. I, you know what? There's a way to look at this uh, because this setup is actually very similar to EuroLeague games. And I wonder if you can compare the numbers and, and maybe just see if there's a similar increase. Obviously, the the three-point distance is different and, and the game itself is different. But I wonder if you might see uh, a difference between the, the some of the EuroLeague games and maybe some of the games that they play within their divisions where fans might be a little bit closer. That's I interesting. Think I think it, it sounds like a thing. It's it, it certainly is a thing because it's just the comfort level that the players have in terms of shooting. It's a lot easier to, for it to feel, even though the game's going on, pressure, adrenaline, and everything like that, it also feels a little bit like practice a little bit, right? Because there's right. nobody around. It's almost like this is the, the gym you practice in and things like that. So I feel like it's that's definitely a thing. Let me ask you this question, though, Seth. Do you think this is also the reason why we've had a crazy amount of guys step out of bounds in that scenario? It's an interesting question, and I don't know. I, I think we'd have to look and see if we have. I stumped Seth. I'm out. <laughs> well, I actually think that the they did increase the <laughs> the border width. I think it needs to be bigger. Like I actually think that they should take the the out of bounds line and make it a little bit wider because it's pretty clear. I mean, you know, we've all played basketball. How often are you actually looking down at the line? It's more feel than anything. And you're using your peripheral vision to a large degree. And so I wonder if, if they made that even, even wider, if it would solve it, because I noticed that in the, uh, the scrimmages before the seating games with how thin it was. They widen it um, after they did widen it. Yeah. They widened it a little bit. I just don't think they did it enough. I think it needs to be about a foot. So that it's very, very clear as you're moving around in the corners. But man, that's a that's a good call. So let me yes. let me add something else that I thought was interesting about this. Um, we talk a lot. One of the things that gets talked about a lot is the annoyance of kind of of bench closeouts on guys. And I study this pretty intently, and I found basically no effect. Essentially, what you were what you'd expect to see is that um, either. Uh, in front of the opposing bench, there would be a decline in 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 corner three percentage, or in front of your own bench, there would be an an increase because you know you figure the other the other spots like the crowd's kind of there and bugging you, and even for the home team, they don't know what they're doing, so they don't know how to get out of the way. Um, I really found you know neither to be the case. There's basically not really any sort of consistent right left corner split. Um, Across basically looking back five years, looking back 10 years, looking back 15 years, uh, controlling for which side of the court the home team bench is on, uh, looking at, at first half versus second half. 
So just having those people close to you seems like it's it's the differentiator, not even like not having like the hostile yell and ear thing. Yeah. I wonder if if uh, some team will will send their analytics department to study which fans are best at closing out on the fan sideline and then sign those guys to some max contracts. We need more defense <laughs> in the NBA. Uh, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a lot, uh, <laughs> quite a few topics there. Um, we'll be back next week with more Nerdy She Wrote.